0: Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Spencer Schneider, and he's just published a really fascinating book. The title of the book is Manhattan Cult Story, My Unbelievable True Story of Sex, Crimes, Chaos, and Survival. And I highly recommend this book. It's very interesting. It goes into his detail about how he got involved in a group for over 20, 20 years. And uh, he is an attorney who specializes in corporate litigation in New York. He's also a native of Brooklyn and is an open water marathon swimmer and ice water swimmer. He works as an ocean lifeguard, operates a lifeguard training academy, and co founded a water rescue group. He's the only member or former member of what he calls, or what is called school, to have published his experience in the cult. He was a member of the inner circle for 23 years, and he has a blog about his experience titled Cult Revolt. He's a contributing writer for East Magazine and lives in New York City in East Hampson. And I'll put his contact information in there. But uh, Spencer Schneider, welcome to the show. Nice um, to be here. So for people, this is a fascinating book. This is your first book. Can you kind of talk about your life leading up to this kind of momentous meeting with a guy you call Bruce and how you really got involved in this very curious group in, in Manhattan?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm from uh, Long Island, uh, in the suburbs of New York. I um, <clears throat> was, uh, you know, grew up in a fairly middle class background, wanting nothing. College educated, went to law school, um, had lots of friends, had a great job when I got out of law school. Uh, nothing remarkable except maybe my father uh, passing away when I was 25. Um, And, um, you know, working very hard as an attorney in Manhattan in the uh, late 80s, which was uh, an exciting time.
0: And so you were in kind of downtown Manhattan working uh, long hours and you met up with a friend, Bruce, and that's kind of where it all started, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, I had met this guy named Bruce uh, in a bar in Tribeca, where he was working as a bartender. I was playing in a band there on the weekends, which was, you know, like a hobby of mine. And, um, excuse me, he befriended me and gained my trust. He was, you know, Ivy educated fellow who was working on the bar on weekends. And, um, over a period of time, he was, uh, you know, um, showing great interest in me and eventually made an you know invitation to join what he called an esoteric school for inner development. And can you talk about how they kind of like spotted you, like
0: talent spotted you as somebody who could be in that group? But he kind of lured you in with the enticement of this kind of secret group. Can you talk about what the, yeah. what the
1: selling points were? Yeah, absolutely. You know, look, I wasn't really looking for anything. I'm not spiritually minded. I'm secular Jewish. And, you know, I kind of had everything I wanted. So um, I was doing just fine. But what he said about the group piqued my interest because he said it was based upon an ancient uh, philosophy and that this group was secret and that uh, it consisted of other people like myself who would study. Um, the uh, philosophy of Gershef and of Spensky, which were part of the fourth wing, philosophers I never heard of, even though I had a philosophy major, and that appealed to me. You know, I kind of missed learning. I missed intellectual rigors. And um, while I was very suspicious, I was very suspicious of this. I figured I'd give it a crack. Um, the The other lore was that uh, he had wonderful friends. And uh, he introduced me to a woman who uh, was in the group and who was also extremely impressive in her background. And I could see that they had this like tremendous bond together, which was unlike anything I'd seen in just casual friendships. So it was a very sophisticated and uh, very specific type of recruitment that they had.
0: Right. So they're looking for people who are educated professionals, had some money, it seems like. Can you talk what it was like getting invited to that first meeting and what that first meeting was like?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, we met at a secret location. Uh, He didn't tell me where we were going until the last moment. He kind of led me uh, to this loft in Tribeca uh, in a summer night. And we got up into a room, um, just an unremarkable loft with about 60 people milling about. You know, it didn't look like it was a school um, or, uh, you know, of of ancient knowledge. It was just a bunch of white people like me, you know, coming from the bank, coming from law offices, from the emergency room, whatnot. And, um, you know, the discussion was, um, uh, you know, rather dry, and I wasn't really inclined to return, Um, but I did.
0: Right. So there's something there, but they talked about Utah Gurdjieff, who was uh, kind of a known right. new age, maybe modern philosopher. And he ended up in France, I believe. But uh, right. they kind of had this, it was called the secret terms, the school, the place. So it kind of had this, but the selling point was that you could learn and evolve, right? That that was kind of uh, what the goal was for your
1: de- personal development. Exactly. That these ideas, this philosophy was very practicable, practical and could be used as sort of a tool to navigate, you know, people's lives and, you know, find um, meaning and, uh, you know, improve your job, improve all of these things that are very of, uh, of interest to most New Yorkers, most people. Um, but the trappings of it were very, um, you know, uh, familiar to me in a certain way. People sitting around and talking about ideas. So, um, you know, I I suffered a crisis in that first month, which was that I lost my job. And I found they were extremely supportive and very helpful to me, the leaders and the other members. And, you know, found the sense of community that, you know, frankly, had been missing. And um, it was a little bit like falling in love. You know, it's like it was very irrational. It didn't really make sense. But it was very... um, strong and a compelling proposition to continue with these people. And it was kind of, there was
0: some, you could sense at the beginning, there was like an interior structure. So you had these teachers and can you talk about how it unraveled to you and what the teachings were and how the organization kind of functioned?
1: Yes, it was very hierarchical. Um, There were, uh, you know, two teachers sitting in front of a room, basically lecturing throughout, you know, an evening twice a week. I mean, that's really what it was. But it came to really fill my life because um, they insisted that we come in and talk about our personal lives. And they gave advice based upon their interpretation of the Gertrudev ideas. And the advice really crossed boundaries, so much so that you're thinking uh, was sort of permeated by the advice that they gave to people, which could be also very harsh at times. And um, you know, they used all the tools that cults use—really gaslighting people um, and um, and yeah, being-
0: love bombing. It seems like you got one of the first introductions, which is, "We're there for you. We support you." That kind of thing. That's also another term.
1: Exactly. But- I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Rick Ross. I should just say that. Um, Rick, uh, I know Rick, he actually um, wrote a blurb for the book, and he's, a uh, you know, an expert in cults. He um, said that this is one of the most secretive cults he'd ever come across in all of his time, and that um, he had tried without success to get people out. Um, that's how gripping and how gripped many of his members were. It really is kind of different
0: in from all the other cults. Either have some address or corporate name, nexium Scientology. This is super vague, and they keep insisting on invisibility, secrecy. So when you were in it, your family and friends before that had no idea,
1: right? That's right. I never told a single soul about it for twenty three years. Um, many people, uh, many married people, never told their spouses. Um, folks never told their children, their families, their best friends. I mean, for all people knew, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer. My clients didn't know. Nobody knew, um, and that was deliberate. Uh, if I could explain why, I mean, the leaders were um, we had, we didn't know this, but had been driven out of San Francisco um, because of a lot of controversy. And when they came to New York, they decided to just go seriously underground. And continue by um, really uh, trying to attract richer people and charging more. So they changed their business model, um, uh, so to speak. So there was a business, like the first thing
0: was for you. All they were asking was three hundred dollars a month, right? That's worth. That's goes. right. It,
1: that's right. It, it was three hundred a month, and then it sort of built up through the years, probably to about you know four or five hundred dollars a month because they had all these extras. But this was a Business. It was a big business that generated, you know, I estimate over 1.2 million dollars a year in cash for the leader. That's a lot. And so
0: yeah. they had this thing. You had you had to get two books. It was Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution and Search for the Miraculous. But they insisted kind of on this Gurdjieff psychology and abandon kind of standard, maybe Freudian or more commonly understood kind of psychology, right? So you kind of-
1: Yeah.
0: Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, we were forbidden from seeing a psychiatrist or therapists because I guess the view was that we would um, maybe possibly reveal the existence of of what we called school. But also because, uh, you know, they really looked down on uh, modern psychology. They thought dreams had no meaning and they had their own conception of the way people's psychology worked, Um, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, may have some merits. It's based upon some Eastern philosophies, but it's it's really a hodgepodge of ideas that I I really can't subscribe to right now anymore. But um, it was useful to control, help control people. I would say that's, I would leave it like that.
0: But they they had this kind of thing. There was all this numerology. There was the seven, right. it was almost like chakras or something. You were number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, the fourth way. So there really was this kind of, you're supposed to emulate these certain doctrines to become a, a more full person, right? Real, yeah, absolutely.
1: And some of them were attractive, like the law of seven is about, you know, um, the, is based upon the octave and that there's uh, seven, you know, notes in an octave or eight, you know, I forgot exactly what is, I think it's eight notes in the octave, which sort of represents how one goes about um, achieving a goal. And these were all very, you know, interesting ideas. I don't know where they got them from, but uh, there was also this cosmology of uh, emanations coming from the absolute. that um, was called the ray of creation. And we spent, you know, years literally talking about these ideas over and over again. All right,
0: so you're almost getting the same doctrine in a kind of a loop. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, and which leads to people, uh, you know, um, being extremely b- bored and depressed, but they're so attached to it, and it really is like your whole mind um, that it's very hard to escape it. But that's a perfect way of putting it. It is, and there's loop.
0: no, and, you're, and even it's invisible, but you're not supposed to acknowledge fellow class group members, school members. Actually, is probably the right term outside of these meetings that happen twice a week. Right.
1: That's that's correct. Uh, we were forbidden to fraternize. Um, in any way with anyone who was in the group. We were told, oh, this is a special place. Um, uh, You know, this is the place to talk to these people nowhere else. Um, It'll create a different environment. And um, uh, it certainly did. I mean, uh, um, it was kind of interesting to just see these people only in one place, not talk to them about anything else and, you know, not call them on the phone. And if I saw someone in the street, in the subway, you just kind of like nod and move on.
0: Wow. That's really incredible. And so yeah. you're learning all this Gurdjieff stuff. You're learning the sustainers. There's this hierarchy. And you never really saw or understood that there was kind of a, a top person for a year, right? Is that right?
1: That's, that's exactly right. The leader. You? Yeah, sure. I mean, we had two leaders at the beginning who were, um you know we became attached to them after a while and suddenly a woman appeared uh, after about a year um who whose name was Sharon we were told her name was Sharon uh, found out later it was Sharon Gans um and if there had been an internet I would have been able to find out that she had been uh, an actress in the 60s and 70s had been in Slaughterhouse-Five um and that would have been about as much as I would have known about her, including that she was exposed in, by the San Francisco Chronicle as being a cult leader in San Francisco. But I couldn't possibly know about this. Uh, she you appeared... kind
0: of, Can you talk about her cult background in San Francisco a little bit? What cult was she oh, yeah. in the same type of same type of structure in San Francisco, or she changed it?
1: She changed the structure. It was the same philosophy based upon, you know, the fourth way. Her and her husband, uh, her second husband, his name was Alex Horn, And Alex Horn had some connection with some of the Gertrude folks. And he'd also um, had um, a, a, a cult in Sonoma with his then wife. And I think one of the branches of that cult became the Fellowship of Friends um, which still exists in San Francisco. And there was recent news about them. They're a very dangerous group. Um, and, and so Alex and Sharon, they fancied themselves as an actress and a screenwriter. And they started this theater called the Theater of All Possibilities, which was a front really for a cult. I mean, they, they had uh, their members of the theater group would uh, be forced to sell tickets to their horrible shows, and um, they had this sort of communal kind of life, um, young folks. Um, and uh, there was a lot of abuse. There was sexual abuse and physical abuse and um, forced labor. And it, it was a pretty ugly situation. Um,
0: so that guy Burton, I just read about him. I yeah. read, so she was associated with this guy Burton. And he, uh, he was a predator, I think, of uh, young, younger men. I remember. Yes. That,
1: um, yes. Yeah. R- yeah. Burton supposedly got his whole philosophy from Alex Horn. Oh, wow. Yeah. So and, a, oh, oh, wow. See, I didn't know that connection. Okay. So you were yeah. kind of like an
0: offshoot of this fellowship of friends.
1: No, the fellowship oh. was an offshoot of Alex Horn. Oh, okay. And Alex yeah. Horn was,
0: uh, was with Sharon Gans, right? They were either. Exactly. Okay. I see now. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so, so you see this person, she kind of, um, exhibited all of like the secrecy and cult like behavior of like, can you talk about what it was like seeing her and how people adapted to her or reacted to her?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was a shocking appearance. I mean, we had no idea who this woman was and all of a sudden she was shown amazing, um, uh, uh, deference by the people who led the group. And, uh, you know, she was much older and she was, a her appearance was bizarre. I mean, she kind of dressed like as a, as a queen, you know, from a Shakespearean period piece, uh, long red hair and very pale skin and, um, an extremely, um, uh, you know, regal appearance. And you could tell she thought, uh, very highly of herself. Um, and, you know, she talked about sex the first night, and it was really off-putting. It just had nothing to do with what we were talking about. And um, I wasn't inclined to return, but, you know, I've been in it for a year. And um, we found that um, she, uh, you know, was very charming. Um, she could be very loving to people, and, um, but also very frightening. And so this was a new component. It just changed the dynamics of everything. All of a sudden, we had this new leader. Um a new
0: leader in the group and I mean she really had the circle around her. And how did that how did this kind of teaching kind of learning group kind of turn into the kind of coercive, manipulative, uh, controlling group? Like it didn't start right away, right?
1: No, not at all. I would never join a cult and nobody there would. But I think what 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 happened is that there was this hook, you know, where they made you really feel like this was a place where you could learn something that you could learn nowhere else. And they convinced you that the things that were good in your life were due to them and that bad things would happen to you if you left. It's really that simple. And they were able to instill this through, um, uh, you know, just years and years of indoctrination. Um, And eventually, uh, uh, you know, uh, eventually you find yourself really stuck along with these other people. But I I should say there's another side to this, which is that the early years were fun. You know, it's kind of like having um, a parent, who, uh, or, you know, any authority figure in your life who's can be, uh, you know, like borderline, like switching back from one way to another. And you really don't know which way they're going to be on what day. And it can be very unnerving. And uh, you just feel like you have no choice, but to just deal with it, because um, uh, you feel you need them.
0: And she had a very high opinion of herself to you guys. She said, I remember this from your book. Can you talk about what she said about herself?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first night she told us that she um, was almost on the level of of Buddha. She wasn't quite there, but would be there soon enough. And, you know, I did a double take and I looked around the room and everybody else was also, you know, what is this? Um, But the leaders who we had had for a year, didn't question this. They were like, yeah, we agree. And over time, we came to believe this because it was continually drilled into us. And we were told, hey, you don't know what a conscious man or woman looks like. Uh, um, You know, when she's angry, it's really conscious anger. When she's wrathful, it's conscious and so all of these really negative attributes were um, fed to us as being a consciousness. And you couldn't dissent, you know, you couldn't disagree with any of this. Um, but again, it's slow. It's not overnight. It takes time. They do it piece by piece.
0: Right And I mean, and it was very strange too. when she showed up, you had that was the first time you realized there was somebody above, uh, Fred and Priscilla, right? So it must yeah. have been very strange to have her kind of show up with, like, here's the secret boss. It's almost like the process church or something. And yeah, no, you guys- it
1: was weird. It was like you found out that you were adopted, you know, like you've never known. I was like, what? These, you know, there's another leader here. So it shifted everything because it became this, you know, further hierarchy, which was, uh, you know, um, unnerving. And and
0: you guys kind of partied together, too. So you would go on day trips or rent boats or go fishing. Can you kind of talk about how they created sure. this kind of group environment?
1: Sure. But let me just add, you raised one idea, one thought that I forgot about, was that there was such mystery about the group. I mean, they really didn't tell us much about themselves or who they were. You know, we knew Fred's name. We knew Priscilla's name, but not their last name. We didn't really know what they did like I say, Sharon, we didn't know where she lived or she had a family or anything about her. Most of the stuff I found out about her was after the fact. uh, And also because I eventually became very close with her. Um, um, But, you know, uh, in the early days, they tried to make it fun. We'd go out uh, and and, and go. um, We went out overnight fishing on a boat. Uh, We had a um, Western themed party, uh, sort of like a surprise party that was thrown for us by some of the older students. Um, there were Christmas parties, um, but then there, in between all this, there could be classes that we would have on a regular night where they would be very abusive to people. So one night it's great, one night it's it's miserable. It was sort of like a, uh, you know, you get whiplash really from the whole experience.
0: It's kind of like an abusive relationship in a lot of ways, too. It seems like they're almost conditioning you, you know. Yeah. Can we get them to come back and abuse them and do all that stuff? Um, Absolutely. And, I mean, really, I mean, it's really incredible, too. And, like, what's odd, and I was curious is that these are all talented people. You had people who were, like, money managers. You had high power people, uh, Ivy League school. So what about that made – like, you know, sometimes you, like some people are kind of hapless. It seems like you guys were all really intelligent. How do you think that that was, they were able to kind of tie you into that group? How do you think, why do you think that? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, people who run cults or very charismatic people uh, who are narcissistic it's psychotic or what have you, they swim in different waters and they are very good at identifying weaknesses in people. And um, Sharon and Alex and Fred and the others um, are very good at, um, you know, giving people what they want by knowing what their vulnerabilities are. And I think, you know, it was different for a lot of people there because, you know, there are a few hundred people there at any given time. But I think that the central thing was that people lack community. Um, it's lonely when you're young um, in an urban setting. And people are disconnected from their families. Um, uh, and, you know, people are looking to start new families. And this was a place where, you know, families started, you know, there were some very deep friendships that uh, arose. So, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, um, uh, what that we were educated or not. And it's, you know, I mean, people look at me and they say, you know, you're the last person I would expect to, to be in a cult. I mean, you had a really good background, you had a good job, you know, Um you're a trial lawyer. I mean, you can tell who who's lying and who's not, but, you know, uh,
0: anyone can be duped. It's the famous statement of everybody in a cult. Nobody ever thinks they're in a cult. That's the whole Correct. thing. Like once they realize I, they're in a cult, they get out. So nobody where they think they're in some kind of thing. So it's something more profound than uh being super intelligent or more intelligent. So there's other the social social dynamics. Um, and you do label this group a cult, right? I mean, do you – how do you specify that term? Like some everybody may have a different definition of cult. What's your definition of cult and how does it apply to this group?
1: Yeah, you know, like Rick Ross has his own definition. It's pro- mine is, you know, very much similar, to, I think, to most of the experts, but I probably put it in my own language. Um, which I is very simple. I mean, you know, there is a charismatic leader, who seeks to exploit people, um, they don't tolerate dissent. Um, if you violate any of the strict rules, you're punished. Um, and that includes being ostracized, um, that you will give an inordinate amount of money or time to the group. With the promise that your time and money will translate into more time and money for you. Um, and uh, I think that's pretty much um, the hallmarks, which leads, and, and I should add, it leads to uh, this kind of exploitation, um, you know, is usually um, through coercion. Um, it could be physical, it could be mental, it could be a combination of both. I yeah, I've heard that it.
0: term. You know, the definition of a cult, I think, I don't know if it's Ross's, well, I think it's the bite model for Hassan, but Ross's is course of control. So course of it, control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's his phrase. Um, yeah. And there was, they kind of controlled relationships too, like what to, to fall in love with, who to have, you know, relations with. Can you kind of talk about right. how they manipulated people in that regard?
1: Sure. And let me add this one other element, which I think will help answer this question, which is deception. Um, you know, I mean, everyone who comes out of uh, a cult and I've met people recently who've gotten out of this cult, uh, who, uh, found out about my book and, you know, uh, because they don't, they don't know the, the history of the group because it's still going on today and, um, they all feel duped, you know, lied to. Um, Sharon and the leaders really regulated relationships. They didn't allow people to get together without their permission. And she um, uh, allowed people to get married um, if she thought the you know, relationship would benefit her, you know, um, and that people would stay if they got married. So there were marriages that were arranged. I, my marriage was for all intents and purposes arranged um, uh, with someone else in the group. Um, She uh, often um, uh, arranged private adoptions among members of the group. Um, She would encourage people to have affairs uh, in the group with other people, which was coercive. Um, uh, She was able to convince people to, you know, donate large amounts of money to her if they had uh, extra income. Um, And... You know, regulated. You know, all of our thoughts. Really, I mean, eventually there was just no boundaries uh, and no limits.
0: Wow. So they kind of it just is that process of breaking down. Kind of, I think you write in free will, or it's it's very curious. It's unfortunate. And you, I mean, what what point did you go? You know, I, I'm done. Like, how did you get out?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was really a long process. I was very unhappy for a long time, but I was really stuck there be uh, through um, various things in my personal life, my marriage and my work, and both of which I felt I would lose if I left the cult. But eventually I began to see how um, little regard that the leaders had for me. Um, I had always believed that, that they had my self-interest. Uh, my best interest uh, at heart, but I learned through uh, a lot of um, uh, suffering, uh, a lot of pain that they didn't. And I, I think it was well, the straw that broke the camel back was when uh, the leader attacked um, one of the women in a very vicious way. There was a lot of public humiliation uh, in in the groups, and I just witnessed that one night, and that was pretty much the end of it. Just had to leave.
0: Just wanted kind to of get out. Like you had a yeah. just a random relation uh, interaction with the stewardess, and it seemed yeah. like she, she gave you just like, "Hey, yeah. this doesn't something right. not right here, right?"
1: Spencer? Right. I should. Yeah, that's a good point. I forgot about that story. Yeah. Bef- while I was really on the edge of wanting to leave, I finally revealed the existence of of the cult to someone. It was a it was a flight attendant who I met and uh, actually started dating, and told her. I felt safe with her and that I could tell her about it. And, you know, I told her it was a secret group and she said, that doesn't sound right to me. And that, uh, you know, all the bells went off. And um, it really wasn't until the day I left afterwards that I thought, oh, wow, that was a cult. Interesting.
0: And it was interesting, like you had to kind of go through that process too of coming out, seeing a therapist, seeing Bruce again. I thought it was pretty interesting that you had the courage to kind of reach out to the guy who, uh, got you in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, wanted to, uh, reach out to people because after people left the group, you weren't allowed to talk to them. If you're in the group, Bruce had left, um, years before and I called him up, I said, I'm out and we got together. And, uh, you know, I told him, I said, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a little mad at you that you invited me. And uh, you know, he apologized uh, an apology I accepted because I knew that uh, he was also under the grips of this cult and he did uh, recruiting, really thinking that this was he was doing me a favor. But he did apology, apologize, and I accepted it. Yeah.
0: And do you feel writing this book? you're the you're the first person who's read about wrote about written about the school. Do you feel like you're in danger or you could be sued or there could be uh, consequences from writing this book?
1: You know, I've been talking about this group for uh, publicly for about six or seven years. I'm one of two bloggers um, uh, and I have never had any um, contact. uh, I haven't been contacted by them. Uh, This is a slightly different scale. You know, you could see I'm on I'm online here with you talking, showing my face, you know, detailing this book, uh, which contains many uh, details that have never been out there, even on my blog about this group and about my personal life. But, you know, I'm I'm uh, we'll see, see if they do anything, you know. And you kind
0: of you kind of kind of were able to see kind of other members in the kind of X uh, you know, course of group community, too, after you came out through the blog, right?
1: Right, right. I met, a, I, you know, I, uh, the, the, the blog, uh, the intention was to sort of expose them because it was so secretive and to really, you know, um, give voice to other people who wanted to talk about the group, even anonymously. And I met up with a lot of survivors. And, uh, you know, it was a very uh, healing process uh, uh, for people to, you know, Get together, but a lot of you know. I shouldn't say. I mean, I wasn't the only one um, uh, blogging. There was one or two others at the time, and there were people were you know uh, getting together, but I I, uh, without me before I got out, obviously. But it was a a good time to um, for me to really um, come to grips with what had happened um, and to give everyone an opportunity to talk about it. And this was the article that I mentioned. This is
0: in the news. Yeah. This is a very recent article, June 16th, uh, about the Fellowship of Friends in Oregon House, California. And this character, yeah. and this is Google. So you're in the news with this new book, and this whole The Fourth Way is uh, right here. you know. And there's a picture of Robert Earl Burton, who's an associate of Sharon Gans.
1: That's right. Husband.
0: And there's tons of money involved in this. It sounds a lot like the same experiences you had, unfortunately. So secrecy, uh, looking for talented, intelligent people, like they're going after Google employees, right?
1: So. That's right. That's right. Um, they have a real stronghold over that. And and Sharon also created businesses, um, uh, you know, members would create businesses that were really fronts for her um, vast empire of, of money and real estate. Um, so differences... Yeah, I was just going to say the difference is that Sharon was secretive about it. She didn't want anybody to know her business, but it's coming out now. The New York Post actually did um, two stories about my book oh, in the okay. last week, and talk. They talk. They're talking about like uh, you know the the current uh, iteration of the group because she died about a year and a half ago. Sharon. She died eighty five, so she kind of was in that game a no, long no. How old was she? Yeah, she was 85. Yes, correct. I'm sorry. She died when she was 85 in the beginning of last year.
0: Like the COVID epidemic, she was a uh,
1: yeah. Didn't make it yeah. right.
0: And so you have a picture of her buried with a Horn too, right? They're buried next to each other,
1: right? They're buried out in um in, in Long Island, in East Hampton. Um,
0: and like, uh, did you find writing this book was kind of a cathartic? What did, how did you feel putting this information on page and, and putting it out in the
1: public? Um, you know, uh, yes. I mean, it was it was uh, cathartic in the sense of being able to finally get it all out and getting it done. The main reason I did it was to really expose this group and to show, you know, to other people who are in, in this group, really, or any kind of abusive relationship or traumatic situation is that there's really hope you can get out of these groups, um, you can recover um, as low as I was, um, I managed to get things together, I had a lot of help, great family and friends, but I, I, I it's a cautionary tale, but it's also a um, a, a story about hope.
0: Yeah, and it really is unbelievable. Like, the secret group barely has a name. Nobody talks outside. It's all I had this weird, when I was reading through the book, like it was Fight Club or something. Like, not <laughs> as like that, but almost like the secret group that has meetings and they nod at each other. Just like in Fight Club. Like, they really structured a very curious group. And she made, you said, $1.2 million a year. Did she live? She ended up living in the, was it the uh, Waldorf Astoria
1: Austin. or The Plaza Hotel. She had an eight and a half million dollar apartment that was paid for by certain members of the group, um, and she passed away there. She had um, homes in the Hamptons and Mexico. um, uh, um, Did you ever see any overlap
0: of this group with other kind of groups? Nexium was in New York. I know that, but um,
1: (laughs) yeah. So I I I never did, but one of the members of Nexium, Sarah Edmondson. Who um, uh, was the main whistleblower of Nexium and was in the vow along with Rick Ross? Actually, um, she interviewed me for her her podcast, and she um, said to me that she thought that Keith Raniere must have been in this cult because some of his his techniques were very similar. And uh, I said, I'd never heard of him before. And she insisted that they were so similar. He had to have been involved, but whether that happened or not, I don't know.
0: And you said you started in what, 92 or 93. Was it, was that group fully funk? I mean, it seemed like that was fully functioning and operating at that time. How far back did it go? Do you know?
1: Yeah, it started in New York in the early eighties and it just, Grew bigger and bigger and bigger, and more secretive and more uh, wealthier people. And you know, I'd say there was a few hundred in it in any given time. Um, People would come and go, um, but there are people like the people who are in it now have been involved in the group for you know probably forty plus years. It's amazing. It's amazing.
0: And so, you was there three tiers of hierarchy going up to Sharon Gans, or did was there even more than that? Do you can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. Um, Sharon was at the top. She had like two or three lieutenants and there were probably about, um, uh, I would say, I would say five or six levels within the of hierarchy in the group. Um, and uh, she kept everyone very um, separate from each other also. And um, so it's
0: compartmentalization the, uh, techniques. Yeah,
1: exactly. Compartmentalized. And in order to keep the flow of information from happening, it was also a way of, of creating surprises, which she always promised to people.
0: And there's a lot more in this book. It's really a great book, and it's great to talk with you and see that it's, it really is a present-day book with this whole thing going on with the Fellowship of Friends of Google. That just, like, blew my mind just talking to you now. I had no connection between the school and that. So that's amazing. Is there anything you'd like to add, Spencer, Or anything I missed before we wrap this up?
1: No, not really. I mean, just that, uh, you know, if you find yourself in or or find family members or whatever in in situations like that, there are experts out there. You you mentioned uh, Rick Ross. He's great. And, you know, there are lots of resources there. So I just want to point that out and hope uh, that if you're in situations like this or know people who are, you get help. And it's yeah, and you possible. have
0: like nine telltale signs. You're in a cold. You explain a lot of stuff. There's a lot more in this book. And there's an yeah. audio book for this, too, right?
1: Yeah, the audio book came out uh, the same day, July 5th. July 5th. Yeah. So very recently, just in the last
0: 10 days. And yeah. your social media is you're on Instagram and Facebook at official Spencer Schneider and Spencer Schneider on Facebook. People want to reach out right. to you. Is that the best place to do it?
1: Yeah, you can uh, You can also go to my um, website, which is spencer-schneider. Um, and you can go to cultrevolt.com, and, you know, you'll find my information there. And love to hear from people. Happy cool. to talk
0: to people. And I'll yeah. put those in the show notes. Link's in the show notes. Thanks so much for your time. Fascinating discussion. Again, the title yeah. of the book, you can get it now. Manhattan Cult Story. My Unbelievable True Story of Sex, Crimes, and Chaos and Survival by Spencer Schneider. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Great Great to be here. Thank you. Stay there. Stay there.